0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Appreciate you all being here today. It's good to have you with us. We're continuing our study of this little epistle of 3rd John today. Now, when we read 3 John and 2 John together, it becomes apparent that there's two different groups of missionaries that were moving around among the churches. One group was teaching error. That's 2 John is warning him about that. The other is teaching the truth. So 2 John deals with the admonition, don't be hospitable to those that are teaching error. Don't welcome them in your house. Don't give them a greeting. And then 3 John deals with the admonition To be hospitable to those who are teaching the truth. That's the distinction between these two. We shared this with you earlier, but I want to go over it again. Colin Krauss in the Pillar New Testament Commentary says this. He says, this letter, written, 3 John, written by the elder to his friend Gaius, has essentially three functions. To reinforce Gaius' commitment to the noble work of providing hospitality to traveling missionaries, something he was already doing. Secondly, to draw attention to the intolerable behavior of Diotrephes and to foreshadow the steps uh, he intends to take in response to it. And then thirdly, to commend Demetrius. So this letter really revolves around three men, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. We looked at the first eight verses so far, which really are a commendation and also an encouragement of Gaius's hospitality. Then in verses 9-11, through 11, deal with diatrophies, and then verse 12 wraps up with Demetrius. Now, we're only going to do one verse today. Alright, we're going to talk... <laughs> I know, you're shocked. Alright. <laughs> a whole verse, okay. Oh... I've never seen a group with so many people with the gift of sarcasm. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. John gives us two concrete examples of how Christian of Christian hospitality. All right. Which is the product of abiding in the truth. He tells us how it behaves. The first example is positive and that's Gaius. He commends him. Uh, Gaius puts the needs of the brothers before his own. The second example of hospitality is negative, and it involves Diotrephes and his rotten behavior. Now, the change in verse 9 is kind of startling. We're going along eight verses, and he's just commending him, and all of a sudden we get to this guy, and, you know, everything's contrary to hospitality. He's doing everything he can to prevent the service of God from having a reception In the church. You know, I think sometimes we have this idyllic view of the early Christian church. You know, the first century church, what an amazing place to be. We all want to be part of it. It's just, you know, we act like it was perfect at times, but it wasn't. Now, at times, the actions of the early church were amazing, and I'm sure it was an amazing place to be. We see this in Acts chapter 4. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That's a pretty amazing statement, people. Okay? Um, People are pretty selfish, pretty greedy, but they're saying, Look, we got this stuff, we'll share it with whoever has needs. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua and great grace was upon all them. There was not a needy person among them. That's pretty amazing. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. So it was an amazing place, amazing time to be involved in the early church. These people were reaching out and helping people. Sounds like an amazing assembly. I mean, who wouldn't want to be part of that? But the early church wasn't without its problems, and today we meet one of those problems, deatrophies, all right? And our text for today shows us that even in the first century, there were some not good people, all right? You know, I think the church, because we're going back to the first century here and seeing deotrophies, well, the church has always had leaders who loved to have the preeminence, okay, who are proud, who are selfish, who are self-centered, who seek the places of power and the places of fame and the places of prestige. And that's what we see here. 3 John 1.9 says, I have written something to the church, but the atrophies, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Now, he says, I have written something to the church. This indicates a prior written communication to the church. Now, this is not written to Gaius like Third John is, but this was written to the church, and apparently Diotrephes ignored it, destroyed it. We don't have it; he got rid of it. Some some authors see this as a reference to Second John, but that, I think that's unlikely because there's no request here in Second John for hospitality. All right, in the letter. And this is an interesting statement we have here, because it points to the fact that there were those within the apostolic circle who wrote things which we don't have any record of today, things that somehow disappeared. For example, there's a missing letter to the Corinthians, referenced in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, and in 7, 8, and 9. There also may be an earlier letter to the Ephesians, referenced in Ephesians 3, 3, and 4. And we hear about an epistle to the Laodiceans that we don't have, referenced in Colossians 4.16. And here we have a letter that John wrote to the church that we don't have. So these letters, they're gone. We don't know anything about them. Now, that said, I believe that we have in the canon what the Lord wanted us to have. I believe the canon was put together and God oversaw and made sure that what was needed got in there. I believe the Bible was put together supernaturally because God made sure we got what we needed. But there are some things that were written that we do not have. All right, he talks here about Diotrephes. This is the only mention of this man in the New Testament. It's a very rare name. His name means reared by Zeus or nursed by Zeus. And it was a name found only among nobility... In ancient families that help you put some of these things together okay you know it was a custom for christians in those days to discard their heathen names but this guy hung on to his nursed by zeus so it may have been that he had this self-importance problem because he came from some noble family and he just thought he was somebody and when he gets in the church he still thinks he's somebody And not only does Diotrephes reject John's authority, but he is aggressively involved in rejecting the apostolic policy and even taking his vengeance on those in the church trying to follow it. He says he does not acknowledge our authority. He just, I don't care who you are, I'm not paying any attention to that. The our here, I think, refers to the apostolic circle, the church at Jerusalem. Now, I know that John was not an apostle. But he was part of that apostolic circle who was writing and communicating with the churches. And he would have been considered part of that. And he definitely had authority. And he said, Diotrephes got this letter. He said, "Ah, who's this guy? Just threw it away. I'm not not taking orders from you. I do what I want to around here. All right. He says he likes to put himself first. Ah, This is kind of a weak translation, I think. Okay. As far as likes go. Uh, The scriptures 2009 put it this way. I wrote to the assembly. I like that. But Diotrephes, who loves to be the first among them does not receive us. Loves to be the first is a compound Greek word. Philop protuo. Which comes from philo which means to love and protuo which is foremost. He loves to be foremost. He loves to be the first in rank. Now, this uh, philopotruo is only used here in the New Testament, but potruo is used in Colossians 1.18 of Christ, premier rank. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's Christ. Preeminent here is potruo. All right. So he says, Diotrephes, who loves. And this is in the present tense, meaning this is a pattern for him. This is a habitual thing. So here's a man who's literally competing with Christ. He is one who doesn't believe that Yeshua alone is first, but he seeks to supplant himself in that place, and he's going to rule the church. He's going to take the place of Christ, basically. He's acting with the authority of a a maniacal leader here. Uh, He thinks he's a bishop. He's taken control. Now, the bishop would be a person who was arising from the elders and kind of overseeing the elders, which is not a biblical position. We talked about this before. I think the biblical position is plurality of elders who are all equal elders. Well, this man has arisen to the point where somehow now in the church they're letting him rule the thing. They're letting him Hold first rank and do what he wants to do. Now, let me draw your attention to something here that I think is really important. Please notice that John does not say or imply that Diotrephes held false doctrine. That's significant. Diotrephes' theology was orthodox. If it had not been, I think John would have condemned him as a heretic. His problem was not theological, it was clerical. He believed an individual could take control of the local church. And I think this is one of the most dangerous positions you can see. When you have one individual running the church, he does what he wants. He destroys people. He just, it's a bad situation. That's where he's at. And this kind of egotistical individual has been present in the church for every age. First, the early church, here's a guy wants to run things. Wants to throw people out of the church. We'll look at that next time. But uh, the root problem with Diotrephes was pride. Self-centeredness. And this is the explanation for the majority of church problems down through history. Pride. People want to be first. People want to have the preeminence. Now, in our study, we'll look more at Diotrephes and what exactly he was doing But for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to focus in on this issue of Diotrephes and his pride. Because a lot of the early writers felt pride was the chief of sins. Some even think that pride is the root of all other sins. And it well may be, as it leads to so many other particular offenses. Older commentators spoke of pride as the chief sin. In that other twigs, they said, grew from its fertile and fatal root. So Diotrephes' attitude of pride is condemned throughout the Scripture. James 4.6 says this, He gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud. That's a good reason not to be proud. Okay? But, now watch this, gives grace to the humble. Please notice that this verse is both a warning to the proud and a promise to the humble. Now, pride is an attitude of self-sufficiency toward God, whereas humility is an acknowledgment that we are weak, we are unworthy, we are inadequate. To the humble, God promises grace. Now, I believe that everybody here knows what pride is, right? I think we certainly know it when we see it. Right? (laughs) And we see pride in our neighborhoods. We see it in all corners of human existence, even in our homes. It sprouts well in the quarters of power and in every borough in America down to the halls of the homeless. When that husband maintains one position in an argument with his wife, or when the wife stubbornly tries to get her way, pride grows. Pride seeds itself in the office suite in the schoolroom, on the athletic field. In fact, every corner of the universe where the active lordship of Christ is not present, pride is characterized by self-assertion, selfishness. It's the opposite of humility. It's known by selfishness. I really believe that we saw a good example of pride and arrogance this past week when the Democratic Party doubled down on their spending bills after Tuesday's bloodbath. I mean, you had a political novice, Glenn Youngkin, a businessman, never run for office. He had a 2% name recognition when he began. And listen, this businessman who wasn't a politician, who never ran before, defeated the entire Democratic establishment. Okay? Barack Obama was out pushing for young, I mean, for McAuliffe. Joe Biden was out. Kamala Harris was out. When they came down to push for this McAuliffe, I thought, McAuliffe, that's suicide. Nobody likes these people. What are you doing? You got Terry McAuliffe, who is, you know, one of the Clinton crime family. All right, the whole establishment is behind these people, and Youngkin defeated them all. And he wasn't alone. Republican Winsome Sears won the lieutenant governor's race. I, I laugh at CNN, MSNBC, they're saying, oh, it's the white supremacists who put all this stuff, all, that's why all this happened in Virginia. And I thought, have you seen Winsome Sears? When she gave her acceptance speech, she says, I'm black and have been all my life. (laughs) I loved it. I was like, yep, she just didn't turn black today, people. She was black in the past when they voted her in, okay? It just, it's crazy. Republican Jason Miaris, he won the attorney general seat. Republicans won 52 seats in the Virginia House. Every Republican House incumbent won re-election, and the party flipped seven Democratic seats. And I think it's all because of the failed Biden residency. Not presidency. Residency. Okay? And yet, instead of backing off and reevaluating, you know, most people in a situation like that reevaluate. Maybe our is wrong. Maybe we're doing something. They double down on their spending bill. We're going to push it even harder. They're pushing their hated agenda. This was just a referendum on America saying, no, we don't like what you're doing. Okay? Bible, Biden's approval rate couldn't get much lower. Okay? It's going to start going in the negative numbers soon. All right? But they didn't realize it because of pride. No, no. We're not paying any attention to that. We're pushing on ahead. Paul contrasts pride and humility in Philippians 2.3. He says, do nothing. Not some things. Nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. We could just about eliminate any kind of conflict if people lived by that. I mean, we really could. Now, the word conceit here is from the Greek word kenodoxia. And kenodoxia means vain glory, empty pride. It's a state of mind that seeks personal glory it's used only here in scripture. Now, right now you may be thinking of someone who really needs to hear this message. <laughs> <laughs> and hoping that they're listening or wishing they were here. But before you exclude yourself from this sin, cuz you know, we don't it's not our problem, right? It's other people's problem. Let me read to you the comments of Albert Barnes on the Greek word kenodoxia here, conceit. Barnes says this. Who is there who passes a single day without, in some respect, desiring to display himself? What minister of the gospel preaches who never has any wish to exhibit his talents, eloquence, or learning? How few make a gesture but with some wish to display the grace of power with which it is done. Who in conversation is always free from a desire to show his wit? Or his power in argumentation? Who plays the piano without a desire of commendation? Who thunders in the Senate? Who goes to the field of battle? Who builds a house or purchases an article of apparel? Who writes a book or performs a deed of benevolence altogether uninfluenced by this desire? If all could be taken out of human conduct, which is performed merely from pride, how small a portion would be left. Wow, that's pretty powerful. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis calls pride the great sin because he says it leads to every other vice. And he says this about it. He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees in someone else. Isn't that funny? That is, isn't that true? <laughs> Everybody's got this issue with pride, but we hate it when we see other people with it. You know, It just bothers us and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride is willful arrogance. It's claiming to yourself what is really God's. It is essentially a lust for power, and it's far more prevalent than in rulers alone, but man, you see it in the rulers. All you have to do is look at Congress, look at the Senate. Pride is just, its and it's unending. Pride's no respecter of person or position. In a power-centric society, pride's at the top of the list of sins. Today, many of us are routinely tempted with it, I think. Much of our very environment seduces us with pride. It's a sin of which we should constantly be aware and seek to restrain. If a person tells me they have no problem with pride, I know I'm dealing with a proud person. All right, Because that's a dangerous denial. I really think we need a pride Or at the very least, an antidote for it. And the first thing I want you to understand this morning is that Scripture condemns pride. Our society looks on pride as a virtue. It really does. Everything in our society is built to cater to man's pride, to build man up, to inflate his ego. But the Bible has nothing, nothing good to say about pride. The wisdom literature in the Tanakh is quite helpful in exhibiting the true nature of pride and calling us to avoid it. Proverbs 6.16 and 17 it says, there are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And the first one is haughty eyes. Many translations says a proud look. All right. So God hates these seven things. And at the top of the list is the proud look. Proverbs eight thirteen: the fear of Yahweh is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Again, God says he hates pride. He hates this arrogance. Proverbs eleven two When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But what the humble is wisdom. thirteen ten. By insolence, again, this I don't know that's a good translation. Most translations have pride there. By pride comes nothing but strife. I think we understand that, right? That's what causes strife. All right, one person says, "No, I'm right." No, I'm right, and then you all of a sudden you got strife here. But with those who take advice is wisdom, Proverbs sixteen five. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination. Again, this idea that God hates pride. Pride goes before destruction, in a haughty spirit before fall. I think we're all probably familiar with that verse. All right, it does. It goes. And we're going to look at some illustrations of this in a minute. Proverbs 29:23 One's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. The scriptures have nothing good to say about pride. It's a very destructive, very damaging sin that we're to avoid. This teaching runs all through the scripture. God brings the proud low but he exalts the humble. Yeshua said this in Matthew 23:12. Whoever exalts himself you build yourself up, you're going to be humbled. Whoever humbles himself is going to be exalted. Now, that's a one principle with two sides. It's a promise of being brought low to the proud, but it's a promise of exaltation to those who humble themselves. And this is brought up again in Luke 18:14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We know that the world works by inflating egos and encouraging pride. But pride has no place in the Christian life. God calls us to humility, which is the opposite of pride. Peter and James both say that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Peter, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Now, the Greek word they use here for oppose is antitasomai anti is a compound word from anti, which means against, and tasso, which means to station or arrange. The idea here, people, is God puts on his battle array against the proud. Now, if you want to do war with God, all you got to do is be proud and you're going to get a battle. But he gives grace to the humble. In other words, God is the active antagonist of the proud. Pride is perhaps one of the most destructive attitudes because it puts us at enmity with God. Now, all through the New Testament, pride is characterized as a sin. We see it listed in Mark twenty-one, twenty-three in this category of sins. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, evil, slander, pride. All these evil things come within and they defile the person. We see it in the list of sins in Romans 1.30. Slanders, haters of God, insolent, that's proud. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. We see it listed in 2 Timothy 3.2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. People, pride is a sin. The Word of God has nothing good to say about pride. Now, someone's bound to say, but but what about taking pride in our work? Aren't we supposed to do that? Pride is a sin. And pride will look at their work and say, look at the great job I did. Can you pat me on the back? You know, Aren't I wonderful? Instead of saying we take pride in our work, we should say I do all I do for the glory of God. That's what Scripture tells us to do. The Bible says we're to do whatever for His glory. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Not out of a proud attitude of I need accolades for that, I need a pat on the back. Someone might say, shouldn't we be proud of our children? No, pride's a sin. We should be pleased when our children strive to do their best and seek to live a godly life. We need grace in order to raise our children, and God gives grace to the humble. Let's look at what Scripture says to us about the consequence of pride. We know the Bible condemns pride. What are the consequences? A specific example of the judgment against pride is seen in the prophecy about Edom. Edom is a territory southeast of Jerusalem in the desert, which had many natural fortresses. The city of Petra was the great capital city of Edom. It was well fortified. It was nestled between some high cliffs. And the only entrance was just wide enough for a single individual to pass through it at a time. So it was very easy to guard. Very easy to protect that city. One soldier can guard it because you can only get through once at a time, making it almost invulnerable. But here's what God said in Obadiah 1, 3-4. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Pride does that. You think more of yourself than you should. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. Now this prophecy was fulfilled and the city of Petra was destroyed. And you say, well, how'd they do it if it was so impenetrable? What happened? Petra had water coming into the city and these little troughs flowing down the sides of the cliffs. So they just the enemy cut off the city's water supply. And when you don't have water, you can't last all that long, all right? So they they eventually had to surrender. So God brought them down, even though they thought there's no one that can capture us. We see the consequence of pride in the story of King Uzziah king of Judah. God exalted him to the position of king, and he was a good king, a godly king. Second Chronicles 26.1 says, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. 16. That's young, isn't it? <laughs> Isaiah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zechariah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. Now watch this. And as long as he sought Yahweh, God Made him prosper. Seeking God is a sign of humility. Prayer is a sign of humility. And Uzziah humbled himself and God exalted him. Second Chronicles 26 7 says, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Muanites. Now, in verses 10 through 15, it lists Uzziah's military might. I mean, he was a great military leader. And it lists his accomplishments. And at the end of verse 15, it says this, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Okay? And then the next verse says, when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to Yahweh, his God, and he entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. You say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. He's just offering incense to God. What's wrong with that? Well, Numbers 1640 prohibits that, okay? To be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron could draw near to burn incense before Yahweh, lest he become like Korah, and his company, you know what happened to Korah and his company, right? The ground opened up, swallowed him up, all right? As Yahweh said to him through Moses. So Uzziah knew this, but in his pride, he disobeyed the word of Yahweh. Pride is this attitude of self-glorification, an attempt to disown his dependence upon God. It sets the will of the creature against the will of the Creator. It violates the first commandment to have no other gods before him. Pride puts self before God. It seeks elevation above divinity. And because of this, God judged him. 52 years he reigns, and he's just this tremendous guy. And then it says, Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly. And he himself hurried to go out, because Yahweh had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, lived in a separate house. A leper to the day of his death. For he was excluded from the house of Yahweh. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So he goes from being king of Judah, a powerful military leader, to being a leper this is kind of the background to Isaiah 6 where Isaiah says in the, in the year King Uzziah died I saw the Lord because for 52 years here's this military leader protecting them keeping them safe it was a brill- he dies and now it's like oh now what do we do? Tiglath-Pileser the Assyrian generals on the horizon we're afraid and Isaiah says hey God's on the throne he's still on the throne people and at times we need to lift our heads up and look and, and realize that Uzziah is an example of the truth that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How about another illustration of the destruction of pride in King Nebuchadnezzar? In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar sought to exalt himself. And because he sought to exalt himself, God turns him into a maniac. He's wandering around on the grounds, eating grass, acting like an animal, because he lost his senses. Daniel 4.33 says, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. (laughs) He's a model of self-centered, proud, power, mad love for preeminence, and God judges him. Then another one that I think is quite telling is Haman who we see in the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus ruled all the way from India to Ethiopia, and he raised up this man named Haman to be pretty high ranking in his kingdom. And Haman became drunk with power, and because of that, he's just filled with pride, and he demanded everybody obey him and bow before him and pay homage and honor him. But there was a Jew who wouldn't bow to him named Mordecai. Esther 5.9 says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He's just having a great day, right? But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he's filled with wrath against Mordecai. I mean, here's this guy. He's happy one minute. Next thing, why is he filled with wrath? Because his pride says, Listen, do you know who I am? Why don't you bow to me? Why don't you tremble before me? This is pride. And Haman decided because of what Mordecai had done, he's going to literally annihilate all the Jews. He's going to commit genocide. He loved the preeminence to such a degree that he's literally willing to obliterate a whole race of people because the one man won't bow to him. Remember, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So he gets hung on the gallows that he makes to kill his enemy. Now, I want to make a distinction here. There's a difference between pride and contentment or satisfaction. I think God wants us to be content, but not proud. The one gives glory to God, the other to self. And there may be a fine line between smugness and satisfaction, but we need to be on guard against pride. Well, at the same time, to continue to practice gratitude, to continue to practice thankfulness, the presence of contentment is a good sign that pride is being crucified again and again. Because God wants us content and thankful. In fact, those keep us from demandingness of pride. Henry Ward Beecher said this, Pride slays thanksgiving, but a humble mind is the soul out of which thanks naturally grow. A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. You understand that? I deserve better. Well, that's just pride. So if Albert Barnes is right, and if all of us struggle with pride... How do we deal with this? How do we overcome it? Well, I think the solution to the problem of pride is to see yourself in a biblical manner, to see yourself as a sinner that God saved and sustains by His grace alone. We're all aware that it's a gift of grace from God. Everything we have have is a gift of grace from God. So why would we be proud about it? Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? People, listen. We do differ from one another. Some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are better looking than others. Some of us are more talented than others. Some of us are more gifted than others. We differ, but who makes us differ? And the answer, of course is God. Look at Exodus 4.11. Then Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? What do any of us have that's not a gift from God? Looks, intelligence, popularity, talents, profession, You know, and here's what we have to understand. This is true even of the things that we acquire by diligent effort. Okay? Because Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, You shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth. The things you worked hard for and you want to be proud about, the only reason you could do that is God gave you the ability to do it. That He may confirm His covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. People, we have absolutely no good thing that we did not receive from God. James in one seventeen says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Look with me at David's prayer in 1 Chron- Chronicles 29.11. He says, Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power. And the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and of your own we have given you for we are strangers before you and sojourners. All of us, our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Oh, Yahweh, our God, all this abundance that we have You provided for building this house for you. It comes from your own hand. It's all your own. So people, everything we have, everything we are, comes from Yahweh. And so, what do we have that we didn't receive? It's interesting that in this single sentence here, in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Augustine saw the whole doctrine of grace. When we think of what we have done, and we think of what God has done for us, pride is ruled out. And the only humble attitude remains. Have you ever realized what a pointless thing pride really is? I mean, since we possess only what God has given us, why do we boast? As if we've created something or earned something on our own. Everything we are, everything we have, we owe to God. In the life of a believer, there's just no room for pride. Now, before we close this morning, I want to draw two things to your attention in relation to pride. I want us to understand that pride is a great hindrance to both love and to prayer. All right? 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray. How do we humble ourselves? By prayer, he says, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Listen, prayer is an act of humility. Okay. If they humble themselves and they'll pray because prayer is saying, God, I need you. I need your help. That's why you're praying. Right. Because God has something that you need. He can provide something you feel like you have to have. On the other hand, prayerlessness is pride. When we pray, we're saying, God, I don't need you. I got this. Just watch. You can judge the extent of your own pride by the amount of time you spend in prayer. If you're not praying, it's because you don't need them, which is pride. Think about that. And pride is not only a hindrance to prayer. Pride is a hindrance to love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. So Paul tells us that love is not arrogant. And the Greek word here is phousiao. And it means blowing, to inflate. (laughs) Okay? Figuratively, it means make proud. This word is only used in the New Testament six times. Five of those occasions are in 1 Corinthians. One of the greatest problems of the Corinthians was their pride. And the pride of the Corinthians demonstrated itself in a lack of love, because love is not proud. You know, so often we are impatient, we are unkind to people, because we think we deserve better treatment than we're getting from them. And we need to understand that the root problem of any conflict is pride. By pride comes nothing, only strife. You know, whenever there is division between a husband and wife, between a parent and child, between one believer and another, it's always the root cause is pride. Someone thinks they're deserving better treatment. And where there's pride, there's no love because love is not proud. In one church from the fence... Wes Singlinger writes this. I spent long hours in the intensive care waiting room, watching with anguished people, listening to urgent questions. Will my husband make it? Will my child walk again? How do you live without your companion of 30 years? The intensive care waiting room is different from any other place in the world. And the people who wait are different. They can't do enough for each other. No one is proud. The distinction of race and class melt away. A person is a father first, a black man second. The garbage man loves his wife as much as the university professor loves his. And everyone understands this. Each person pulls for everyone else. In the intensive care waiting room, the world changes. Vanity and pretense vanish. The universe is focused on the doctor's next report. If only it will show improvement. Everyone knows that loving someone else is what life is about. You know, believers, we all need to seek to be characterized by a loving, humble spirit before we're in the intensive care waiting room, because love is not proud. Don't we all need to be a little more on guard against this? Aren't there some looming examples of this in our lives? The solution to the problem of pride is to see yourself in a biblical manner. The remedy for pride is a spirit of humility. To see yourself, you're a sinner. God has saved you by grace. He has sustained you by grace alone. We are, all we are and all we have is a gift of the grace of God. And so really, people, we don't have anything to be proud about. Please remember, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Theotrophies, as I said earlier, probably was correct in doctrine. He didn't have a doctrinal problem. But he loved himself too much, and he had a problem with pride. So your doctrine can be straight. You can have everything the way you should be, but if you're proud, you're not a loving person, and you're not a humble person. So what he's trying to tell us in 3 John is he's saying, listen, don't be like (laughs) Diotrephes. okay? Be like Gaius. Gaius is humble. He's reaching out to the people. He's providing places for them to stay. Diotrephes is totally different. He's so ate up with himself that he thinks he owns this church. He's throwing people out of it. He, you know, he won't let people, even other people, show hospitality. You know, I think only the Lord can reveal to us the depths of our own pride, because again, it's one of those sins we think somebody else has and we don't. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity just to briefly look at the scriptures, look at the condemnation of pride, the destruction of pride. Father, we realize there's, scripture says nothing good about pride, yet our society pushes it at every level. Father, help us to fight against the corrupt, evil society we live in and to allow your word to dictate to us. May we humble ourselves before you, Lord, that we may receive grace. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We love you. Amen.